0: where does it go where does it go all of that cast off junk where does it go
1: welcome to where does it go a podcast about the life cycles of people places and things i'm emily i'm sarah and today sarah i'm going to tell you yet again because the first recording of this did not work out
0: the history (laughs) (laughs) take one
1: (laughs) Where did the fool go on the fool's journey in tarot? And so first I'm going to tell you sort of a brief history of tarot cards. And then why we would care about the fool's journey in tarot and where the fool goes. So let's start with history. Tarot started as an Italian game typically called uh, Tarocchi. And it probably started in the 15th century. And then there was evidence found of tarot as a game in France by at least 1534. Early decks prior to the 15th century were called Trifoni cards, or also known as Trump cards. The Taroki name and game came from Trifoni cards, but also they drew from Trifoni cards the allegorical nature of some of the cards. Some of the cards were used as sort of a storytelling element in gameplay. Versus what we are used to in sort of a deck of cards, as we think of it, like a poker deck. Where you've got 52 cards, four four suits, 52 cards, 10 pip cards, and then three face cards. So the game of Tarot and Taroki spread to France, and then the first Marseille deck was printed in 1660. And the Marseille deck is important because it's the oldest known type of deck used for fortune-telling. Because Tarot started as a card game and is still played as a card game. But is also used for fortune-telling, or cartomancy, which is using a deck of cards to tell fortunes. There are different fortune-telling card decks, like the Lenormand deck. And then you can also just use a regular deck of cards. uh, But Tarot is a very famous Sort of system of using a deck of cards to tell somebody's fortune, and so in the 17th century, it actually became the most popular game and card game in continental Europe. Uh, it's also called Koningrufen in Austria, probably mispronouncing that. There's also an offshoot game called Minchiate, that had 97 or Minchiate, one or the other, uh, that had 97 cards instead of 78. And that included a lot of astrological imagery. But I wanted to make a point of, until the printing press was invented, all of these decks were actually hand-made. And there aren't a lot of them that have survived. So if for some reason you are an antique collector and you're like, oh, I definitely have a lead on like an, a nice, very old Marseille tarot deck, there's a very real possibility that what you are uh, looking to purchase isn't authentic. Because these were... These were used for gameplay. They were used. They were not considered typically collector's items, although there are some that were used as collector's items. And the point was more to play the game than to keep the cards in good repair. Uh, if, if anybody has ever played cards, you know that card decks can you know, have all kinds of problems befall them. And that is nothing new to modern day. You know, spilling your drink or spilling your snacks all over your deck of cards is something that people do sometimes. (laughs) So for the actual card game that is played, different regions use different suit styles. But all the game decks have 22 major arcana cards that are sort of a storytelling arc. And that's sort of where the fool's journey comes from. And then 56 suited cards. Each suit has ten pip cards, like we're used to. So the pips are the hearts, the diamonds, the clubs. Or in tarot, it's uh, pentacles or coins, wands or staffs, swords, and then chalices or cups. And then four face cards. So it's got slightly more cards in the suited cards than a poker deck would, and then 22 additional cards. And then if you're talking about the minchiate or minchiate game... That's 97 cards, which is so many cards to try to shuffle. It would be so difficult. (laughs) So we're up to the 1660s into the 1700s. In the 1700s, French archaeologists claimed that tarot originated in Egypt and that Egyptian iconography was important to reintegrate into tarot decks. It was also the start of the use of tarot decks for divination purposes, and it's not terribly uncommon, as tarot has different sort of renaissances and revivals. For you to find books that strictly state that tarot decks are based on the Egyptian Book of Thoth, who was an Egyptian god with an, uh, as Sarah told me previously, with an ibis head, and he's the god of like the moon and magic and all sorts of things. So the French archaeologists claimed that. All of this iconography was original to tarot and had been like lost. And so they reintegrated it and they started using it for divination purposes. Now I'm bringing this up for two reasons. One, this is sort of a common thing I saw with the history of tarot is people either bringing in iconography that they find sort of mystically interesting and then attaching it to the tarot structure or taking from the tarot structure mystically interesting ideas and applying it to their own uh, sort of structure of how they practice whatever they practice i also wanted to bring it up because it's not accurate <laughs> <laughs> uh but it's also a little bit accurate so how did tarot get to italy because i said it um began in the began being used in the 14th century playing cards were brought from Egypt to Europe in the 14th century. And it was likely by crusaders and also merchants and things like that. But it's not certain exactly what these decks contained. Uh, Games were developed and then they spread and then they were banned and then redeveloped in Europe because the structure of a deck of cards allows for, as we have seen, an enormous number of iterations of gameplay. You can play a lot of games with just a deck of cards. So... The adaptability of card games lent its popularity, and then there was the development of the Trifoni cards and the Tarot cards, and then the spread to France, and then the French people attached Egyptian iconography, but it was an ad hoc attachment, because there's no real evidence that the cards that came from Egypt were mystical in some way. There's been a lot of assumptions throughout time that everything from Egypt ancient egypt in particular is magic and or edible we've got a whole episode on mummies and people in the middle or uh, in the um, middle ages used to eat mummies in europe which
0: right? is right you should definitely go visit that episode it's a good episode it's a good time yeah
1: it's a gross episode uh <laughs> but there was a lot of interest in egyptology but not in a lot of interest in accuracy or respectfulness <laughs> in terms of egyptology <laughs> And so it was a good way to get attention and get people to uh, try out your new card game. But it was not accurate in that there's no evidence for it. And there's no reason to believe that like Egyptians didn't just have the capacity to develop and play card games. And it didn't have to be part of a sacred ritual. So anyway...
0: I like, the, I like thinking that there's always been buzzwords. They've just, the term for buzzwords is different. And back then it was like made in Egypt all the way from the Orient kind of thing. Oh my gosh, you're totally correct. Yes. There have always been buzzwords. Yes.
1: <laughs> Ye olde <laughs> buzzwords. <laughs> Egypt. Uh, Hebraic iconography was integrated into the tarot in 1856-ish. With claims that tarot has origins in the Hebrew Kabbalah. So there's another one. Exactly. And <laughs> there's a lot of willingness and inclination to draw mysticism into a divination tool that was not an origin component of the divination tool. And it's not necessarily like illegitimate to draw that in, it's just illegitimate to claim that it's the origin, you know, it's the origin of a divination tool when it's not in 1885 the hermetic order of the golden dawn which is we could talk a lot about them but we're not going to right now uh (laughs) adopts the 22 major arcana so these 22 cards and the stories behind them as a way to illustrate the rule of mind over matter so they drew from tarot a way to sort of allegorically tell a story and discuss their own canonical ideas in 1910 the Rider weight deck was developed and these are the images we are likely most familiar with for tarot. Uh, they are woodcuts that are very detailed and have a lot of, uh, a lot of imagery that does include some Egyptian imagery. It includes some Greek imagery. It includes some imagery from the middle ages. It's a whole smish of ideas with bright colors and, What this deck in particular did uh, that was unique was bring in a storytelling arc for each of the suits with the pip cards and the face cards and then also add images to them so that uh, there was more meat for divination in that component of the deck. So it sort of fleshed out the 22 major arcana and then also brought in minor arcana story arcs. So it laid a substantial foundation for tarot cartomancy as it's done today. And that was only 110 years ago. And then we're bringing back Egypt uh, in 1944. Aleister Crowley and Lady Frieda Harris published the Thoth Tarot. And it took them a good chunk of a decade, I think, to come up with. And they reintegrated occult and Egyptian iconography into their tarot deck. And they also included because Alistair Crowley was deeply involved in the occult, a lot of occult imagery. And so I've now covered the three major sort of originating decks for use for cartomancy over time in the history of tarot, the Marseille deck, the Rider-Waite deck, and the Thoth tarot deck. So where does that bring us to now, Sarah? Uh, Today. (laughs) Today. You can develop and print on demand an entire tarot deck on your own if you choose. Yay! Groups or individuals can design and sell their own decks. And tarot readers are also able to reach a larger and larger customer base through social media and internet presence. They can do readings that are general readings that people can just watch on YouTube. They can sell readings through the internet. They can have video conferences with clients wherever they want to have video conferences with clients you know no longer do you have to be in your living room or in your little rented house with the psychic sign in the neon at the at the window telling people that you read tarot cards you don't have to wait for people to come to you as much
0: though that is fun but in the time of covid not so great
1: yeah it's at, that's a great additional point of Part of my interest in tarot cards is that they are a storytelling tool and they are a way to connect with each other and with different ways of looking at things. And I think there is a distinct uptick in interest in tarot readings and tarot cards and divination and things like that, because we cannot connect to people in a normal way. And I think we are all sort of striving for some kind of connection and some kind of tell me a story and let's interact. And this is a way to do it that has some structure it can be fun, it can be an interesting way to think about yourself and your position in the world. It may have some fortune-telling capacity. I'm kind of agnostic about it. Um, Sarah, do you want to, I know you already said this, but do you want to talk about how you use tarot?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, uh, and like a lot of other people, connect very deeply to the wild unknown tarot by Kim Kranz. It's beautiful and the reason why it's so popular I think is because it has a lot of uh images in it that are both familiar and very beautiful and it tends to speak to people who are you know really like nature and animals and stuff but anyway um I use tarot pretty much as a meditation tool I like to use tarot spreads and see what comes up and like kind of explore the imagery inside of it so I, I kind of get an idea of like wh- what I'm thinking and what kind of symbolism I'm thinking of. It's, uh, I know that there's a Jungian archetypes tarot, which is interesting. I- I'm really a fan of like kind of archetypes and symbolism and how people think of things. So I use it as a meditation tool. And that's really cool. And I, I use it. Um, I actually have
1: bought two decks this year and I had two, uh, two decks as of a few years ago so I have like four tarot decks which is absurd um
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> I've known people with like
1: 10 <laughs> it's fine and yeah uh I find them useful um for sort of a similar vein to you I get very sort of narrow-minded in my understanding of myself and my place in the world and what's next and things like that and so because this has a very broad narrative structure, particularly The Fool's Journey, but then also with the Rider Waite deck bringing in a story for the minor arcana or the suited components of the deck, it unboxes my mind very much in a way that yes. I find very useful. And, uh, and and like I said, print-on-demand cards, I followed two people on Twitter, Lindsay Falk and Micah. Hayam Thomas, who designed a deck called the Seekers Tarot, and they based it on Lindsay's understanding of the tarot and Micah's writings, and then Micah did a lot of the art, and they did a guidebook and a tarot deck, and they just did it to do this project, and I think it's very cool to be able to interact with people and then see what they've created and then use it as a tool to sort of unbox your own mind. So the Seeker's Tarot, the Wild Unknown Tarot, both very interesting ones.
0: And I don't know if the Seeker's Tarot has an Instagram, but I know that the Wild Unknown does. And there's a lot of artwork on it. It's very pretty.
1: It is beautiful.
0: I don't know that the
1: Seeker's Tarot does have an Instagram. If, it, if they do, it'll be in the show notes.
0: i'm an insta person and emily's the twitter person by the way so so. if you talk to if you talk to us on instagram you'll usually get me if you talk to us on twitter you'll you'll get get emily just fyi
1: (laughs) if you email us you'll get we'll get back to you when we get back to you
0: (laughs) exactly
1: someone will probably
0: someday
1: (laughs) uh So I keep telling this, I keep talking about storytelling and using it to unbox and Sarah uses it for meditation. So let me talk to our beloved audience about the fool's journey and where the fool goes and who the fool is. These are also called, these 22 cards are also called the major arcana. Some decks have variations in these cards, either from like minor disagreements in canonical occult practices or from the purposeful adaptation of tarot ideology. So some people intentionally change the imagery, change, uh, alter the meaning or adapt the meaning or interpret the meaning of these cards. Some do it solely because they feel that there is this rigid, the right way to do things and the wrong way to do things, and this is the right way and this is the wrong way. So this is the order that I'm going to tell it to you in, and if there are decks or... People with ideologies that alter from that know that this is a very flexible tool that people have borrowed from and added to over time. And uh, I am not a I am not a textualist about tarot. I am a uh, I think it's a living tool, game, human utility, storytelling arc, etc.
0: And it's been evolving for a long time.
1: Oh yeah. Uh, So let's start with the Fool. Uh, The Fool is an individual who is starting a journey. This is the card zero. Uh, And even when you're playing Tarot or Taroki uh, as a game, the Fool sometimes isn't played at all. Or sometimes is played so you don't have to follow suit in a game. So it's sort of a wild card either way. And some of the meanings that I have found for The Fool, and this can is subject to interpretation and uh, different people look at it different ways, are travel, a blank slate, the beginning, leaving everything behind, being carefree, being illogical, being naive, sort of a start, a fresh start. Newness that is not good or bad. It's, it's fresh without being, it's freshness without wisdom. So you're lacking wisdom, but you are also lacking burden of care or trauma or whatever. Uh, baggage less in all ways. And so the fool starts on this journey and meets 21 components of a fully lived life. And those 21 components are then sort of further distilled into individuals or, or uh, events or things. So the first card is the magi- the number 1 card is the magician. This is ideas or the spark or meeting a master. And the number 2 is the high priestess. It's seriousness, the occult, knowledge and mystery. The emperor
0: Often yeah, there's often like the the feminine aspect mm-hmm. to it.
1: Definitely. And the magician is often male. Uh there's a lot of balance of male and female in this major arcana and I appreciate that in that um it's often one is not supreme to the other because uh, next you get into cards three and four the empress and the emperor uh the empress is practicality femininity fertility or benign or benevolent rule and then the emperor is stability security masculine protector so it's kind of two sides of the same coin You've got the hero font, which is religion, ritual, hierarchy, formality. So this is a lot of uh, life things, day-to-day things, ways we live, ways we understand ourselves in a physical body or in a group. Then we're going to get to sort of ways you live your life. You've got the lovers, which is card number six of decisions, crossroads, affection, early relationship. You've got the chariot, number seven, resolution, conflict, war, glory, leadership and then you've got strength so courage triumph of intellect defeat of evil these are ways to live your life and then finally we've got the hermit seclusion silence internal reflection sacrifice so now we're going to get into we've we've got how you are as a person ways to live your life now it's going to get kind of weird <laughs> Ten is the wheel of fortune. It cycles, luck, lack of control, things moving along, whether you're along for the ride or not.
0: Uh, and by the way, when I've done my uh, tarot draws for myself, the wheel of fortune has come up so much this year. It's not <laughs> even funny. And I am not surprised
1: by it. That's That would probably be one of the better cards for this year in terms of how things have gone is this is going to go the way it's going to go, whether you're on board or not. And it's going to exactly it's going to feel like the same thing every day, too.
0: The wheel is turning and it might run you over, but it'll be okay.
1: Yeah. And then after the Wheel of Fortune, you have Justice, uh, which has sort of it has sort of a physical manifestation on the card, but it's usually interpreted as sort of a natural order or consequences and rewards for just how you've lived or inevitability. And then you've got the hanged man for number 12, which is patience, change, sacrifice, turning inwards for wisdom, waiting, martyrdom. And then the death card is number 13, which usually freaks people out, but I like this card. Uh, It's about change, release of the old, being unable to go back in time and a new beginning. And that these are all sort of, like death is something that we will all experience at some point so it's like i said this is a component of a life fully lived for the fool uh 14 is temperance which is serenity peace moderation and rest 15 is the devil suggestibility passion lust superficiality material world selfishness old habits old patterns Sixteen is the tower, so sudden change, destruction, loss, arrogance, loss of gains from evil. Uh, And then we're going to get into sort of the heavens. So we've got the stars, the moon, and the sun. Stars are hope, grace, good omens. The moon is dreams, fantasy, curiosity. The sun is decisions, clarity, solving problems. And then we've got judgment for twenty. Tests, news, transformation, a moral awakening. And then the world for twenty-one which is perfection, completion of a cycle, happiness, success, finding what was missing. So the fool, as they go on their journey, go through meeting or coming up against all of these experiences, the people on the cards, the, the feelings that go with them. And so as sort of a storytelling tool, as a meditation tool, the major arcana are supposed to be sort of like the bigger deal cards. Uh, but I just have always, I, once uh, it was pointed out to me that this was sort of a story of someone going on a journey through a sort of a life fully lived, including both spiritual and physical, I, it, it sort of clicked with me of like a lot more interest. So yeah, that's where the fool goes. And then it starts all over again. You go from zero to 22 and then you go right back to zero. There's no end with it. And there's, I mean, there's a beginning and an end, but then you go right back to the beginning and then you march on to the end. So that's tarot and where the fool goes in the fool's journey.
0: That was fantastic. Thank you for doing that all again because our last take got screwed up. It's all my <laughs> fault. So
1: I, I needed to do better.
0: <laughs> no, it was, it was amazing the second time and you added more stuff. So it was great. Excellent. I learned even more. Thank you. Thank you
1: for your patience with me. I appreciate it a lot. <laughs>
0: oh, there, there is no patience required for me. Thank
1: you. What are you talking about, Sarah?
0: Okay, so I'm going to put a trigger warning in front of mine. So if you are happy with what Emily just talked about and uh, talking about child abuse or genital mutilation or castration makes you uneasy or triggers you, stop listening now. Be happy with Emily's fantastic, informative tarot piece today. Um, and you can just be happy and stop now, and we'll go. You can go about your way, and I'll I'll give you a second. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the castrati, and so Emily, did you know, according to 16th century Rome, mutilated children sound like angels?
1: I did actually know that.
0: Yeah, it's it's really screwed up. Anyway, yeah, the castrati. Who were the castrati? Um, so, the castrati, if you are not familiar with this term, or castrato if it's one, but castrati is the plural, were male singers who had undergone castration before they hit or finished puberty so that their voices never changed. And generally, this was done between the ages of seven and 12. Um, and so, if they had promise, if they were already singing in a choir, they had promise, uh, they and uh, they generally uh, their families would uh, have them castrated. Uh, they would then undergo extremely regular musical training. and because their bodies were not producing enough testosterone, they did not. Uh, basically halted. Uh, they didn't go through puberty, so their they generally their long bones got really long. They tend to be short and squat. They put on a lot of weight generally. They didn't have Adam's apples, and their ribs were long too. So they had an extreme lung capacity. So their voice never dropped, and they they had this lung capacity and years of training, and they were just supposedly. Ethereal, ethereally voiced, and could do all these tricks that a lot of um, other singers could not. So the first mentions of castrati as singers, because uh, castration of people have been has been a punishment uh, and something that's been used on slaves for hundreds of years, but the first mentions of what were probably castrati as singers was in the mid 1500s. This is uh, the first actual, officially described castrati to be admitted to the Sistine Chapel choir were in 1599. Before that though, it's likely they had been in the choir, but unofficially and then they were called something else. So around then, it became the rage among nobility to uh, have castrati for their choirs. It was the opinion of the Pope at the time, Pope Clement VIII, that women should be silent in church. So women were not allowed to sing. Um, They weren't supposed to talk. So for the higher musical roles, generally young boys were used and castrati. So even though the practice was illegal, so this is all happening in Italy... Even though it was illegal in many parts of Italy, it still happened because boys from poorer families uh, would have a son castrated in hopes that would lead him to a better life because he would then go into the opera, he would be singing in the Vatican, he uh, he might make money for the family uh, they would become wealthy if he got famous um, so at the height of castrati popularity it's estimated that four to five thousand boys a year were castrated in hopes of bringing their families wealth. Ooh. yeah that's a lot of kids and if they made it they'd be singing as i said in the sistine chapel in famous choirs uh, or be famous themselves because and As I said, because it was technically illegal in many parts of Italy, a lot of the boys' families did not openly admit that this had happened—that they had done this to their children. So they said that they had accidents. There was a lot of accidents around then involving testicles, apparently. So, like being gored by wild boars, kicked by livestock falling on sharp objects or maybe the families would just say no he was born deformed
1: i mean that sounds like the easiest lie to uphold
0: yeah but uh there was a lot of kids being born deformed though or being gored by boars like it would oh sure it was suspicious so this is where it it's gets gross, but I'll explain to you what happened. So the boys were generally drugged with opium and taken to back alley surgeons or barbers. They were put in tubs of hot water or milk, and then the spermatic cord was cut. And the spermatic cord uh, supplies blood to the testicles. So they were not generally removing the testicles, Um the testicles themselves would shriver, shrivel up and they would basically become like um, shrivelly tissue. And this is known today as an orchidectomy or an orchio- orchioctomy. Um, and it's a common surgery if you have um, cancer issues or if you are transgender and want a gender affirming surgery. But uh, yeah, so they didn't cut the testicles. Generally, they just cut the cord and then these boys never developed uh, as you normally would. So in the 16 and 1700s, since the use of castrati was more and more popular in choirs and operatic music, the practice became more widespread uh, and castrati were sought after all throughout Europe for different operatic performer or performances so why didn't they use female singers for this well castrati voices are different than women's voices first of all and for a long time women were not allowed to perform on stage in 1686 pope innocent the outright banned women from performing on stage. So opera houses used more castrati for their roles. So the singing voices, as I said, were very different um, than female opera opera singers and males singing falsettos. So there were actually composers at the time that composed music specifically for castrati voices. And they were known... Um, very very well for their vocal talents and the tricks that their anatomy could give them so since their voices never changed they don't they don't sound like little boys really but they do not sound like adult adult women either it's this very strange in between i think Uh, sound and the voices have been compared to angels or to if if the castrati is very good it's compared to the sound of crystal like if you rub your finger your wet finger with wine on a crystal glass supposedly that's what it sounds like there is a there is a recorded performance and I'll, i'll mention that um later and hopefully we can put it in the podcast so there um we're actually surprisingly large number of well-known and famous castrati and this is an interesting thought many of the most famous castrati were known to be huge divas like, huge divas, they charged exorbitant prices to perform. Um, they had fan clubs. Um, women would send love letters, would be swooning and fainting. Uh, they, they performed all over Europe. Uh, people would have wax idols of these, castrat- these famous castrati. They were like the boy bands of their time.
1: Wow, I want antiques freaks to talk right? about wax idols of castrati.
0: And depending (laughs) on when the castration occurred, if it was after the age of like after the age of eight, like to 10, uh, closer to 12, the now adult castrati might be able to perform sexually. So the castrati were based on as uh, praised as being really good lovers. Some of them were like really sought after as lovers as well because they had built in contraception. Yeah makes a lot of sense. And they were sought after by men and by women. Mm-hmm. So there's a interesting story that I read of a famous castrati who had many lovers. He sang in London and apparently English women loved castrati lovers. So his name was consolino and he would disguise himself as a woman because he was so effeminate. And he would meet his lovers in their house and no one would think anything of it because it was just two women meeting each other Mm -hmm. and no one would be suspicious. And then he would, you know, he had all these ladies that he would visit, (laughs) 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 which I found very interesting. (laughs) So uh, where did they go? So as you might guess, eventually Operation Practice was outright banned as in no, really don't do it. (laughs)
1: yeah for real
0: however it may be no surprise to any of you or emily the sistine chapel as in the catholic church still sought out castrati into the 1870s and late 1800s so uh yeah the sistine chapel still had castrati up until the late 1800s and up until the last uh, known castrati died so operatic taste changed as well women were able to perform on stage again so more uh, soprano soprano parts were given to women Um, castrati were becoming more rare they did exist though uh, obviously they all eventually died out uh, as the practice stopped and taste changed Um, and here's where the recording comes in so, uh, an actual castrati named Alessandro Maresci, uh was recorded by a man named Fred Gaysberg at the Vatican in 1902. And hopefully we can get this. If not, I'll just put it in the show na- notes. And you can hear his voice. So, it's a short recording and you'll be surprised to know that this guy was in his 40s when he recorded this. It is a very i would say it's it's a high voice but it's definitely not a woman singing and it's not falsetto so it's really an interesting it's really an interesting voice And apparently he wasn't uh, that well-known as a singer, but he is the only recorded castrati that we have from this time. So Mureshi sang for the Pope uh, until 1913, and then he retired. He lived to be 64 and died in 1922. 22 uh he had been castrated at the age of seven so and there is also a book about him and then uh a book about the recordings it's called mareshi the last castrato it's by nicholas clapton i think was the author's name and there are people and i want to say this there are people who exist today who Either because of the luck of anatomy or vocal training of their voices, they can attain the range and tone of a castrati when they sing and can do some of the complicated trills that castrati were given in choir music. Or these people have uh, physical endocrinological conditions that may have disrupted their growth as a male and they could have androgen insensitivity or their voice just didn't change or you know they have uh, some other kind of condition that made it so that they uh, did not go through puberty as someone would Mm -hmm. but this is incredibly rare so there are people with a castrati-like voice today but they are not as common as they were when they were actually castrating children So some people recently have asked the Catholic Church to apologize uh, for the use and and basically the encouragement of the use of the castrati, Um, but we all know that they probably won't. I mean, (laughs) if the Catholic Church apologized for all the stuff it's done, especially to male children, you know, it's going to take a a hot minute. Like it's going to (laughs) be a television series with like many seasons, (laughs) <laughs> yeah But yeah that's where they went the castrati uh pretty much died out because they stopped doing it which is probably for the best ultimately absolutely but yeah i really uh i will send emily i will send you the recording it is public domain because it's from 1902 um and you can listen to it and you can be a judge of what a castrati choir would have sounded like with all these mm-hmm. voices that sound like crystal and i can certainly see that comparison when i listen to Mureshi's um recording it's definitely mm-hmm. got a tone of crystal to it very cool yeah
1: also very weird also very creepy
0: yeah people are strange <laughs> <That> <laughs> the really human is- race is nuts
1: yeah it's very strange In general, what we will do to ourselves and each other. Yeah. I'm just thinking like you are truly eliminating a component of your biological legacy by castrating your son. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a remarkable choice to make.
0: And I I think a lot of it was that they wanted their kids to either be famous be wealthy, get money from, you know, the Catholic Church because the kids are in the Sistine Chapel Choir. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that was just, that's what they wanted. It's amazing. Yeah, it's definitely something. (laughs) But yeah, there's a, there's a rich uh, choral history of Castrati. And it is fascinating, definitely. And you know, of course, the, the history of eunuchs uh, throughout the world is interesting too. But this is just one chapter in the history of eunuchs. And mm-hmm. there has to be something else to be said about um, people... Seeking them out as lovers, uh, both male and female people seeking castrati out as lovers, to say about gender roles and uh, gender roles at the time, because the castrati were generally known for their androgynous features. So, very interesting. It is fascinating.
1: People are so strange.
0: Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Very cool, Sarah. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: I knew a little bit about Castrati, but I didn't know all of that. And I'm really excited to hear that recording. I'll do my best to get it into this recording because I think it'd be a cool addition.
0: Yeah, I didn't think if I played it, like you and you'd be able to hear it, Emily, and it wouldn't probably record correctly. So it's better just to piece it in. Yeah. You can also find it on, I think it's, um if you if you want to do simple Wikipedia uh and look up alessandro moreci uh or castrato that you can find it there too very cool yeah.
1: well thank you, Sarah. So that's where the fool goes in their journey uh and where Tarot goes and where Castrati went lots yes of, lots of
0: Italian history there is lots of Italian history, and it's about the same time frame too It is fascinating yeah
1: storytelling and music at the expense of a child's fertility mm-hmm. uh what a world <laughs> so you can find us on twitter and instagram and pinterest and all sorts of other fun places uh you can find our links to that at where does it you can find our email address and uh, chat with us via email uh, at podcast at gmail.com. And we have a Patreon. I don't think we have any patrons, do we? I don't think so. But <laughs> <laughs> we have a Patreon if you wanted to help pay our bills. That would be or awesome. Or you can just
0: donate straight up on our site, com. Yeah.
1: Sarah also runs our website, and I think she does a beautiful job. Uh, Thank you. Thank you because it means I don't have to do it. And it's pretty great to know that it's going to be good looking and I didn't have to do (laughs) any.